Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hi there, I'm Washington Post reporter Lillian Cunningham. Stay tuned after the show to hear about my latest podcast, Moonrise. It's the dark but true story of why we went to the moon and what we found there. The full series is available now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Washington Post, I'm the it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 24th. Today, bias in artificial intelligence, mixed messages in the crackdown on for-profit colleges, and unconventional protests in Lebanon. Because you cover advancements in artificial intelligence. I feel like every time we have a conversation, it's some riff on the idea of like, what fresh hell is this? Yeah. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Drew Harwell is a tech reporter at The Washington Post. And I cover AI and algorithms. And Drew's latest story is about... AI in the job interview. Did you get an invitation to take a higher view interview? Or are you expecting one? You may be wondering what to do next. In this video, I'm going to... Instead of having somebody come in and do this first-round interview to potentially get a job, these employers are starting to use these AI hiring systems where you look into your phone camera and you answer, you know, a couple questions. And meanwhile, the algorithm is processing how you look when you're answering the questions, the words you're saying, the tone of speech you're using, how enthusiastic you sound, whether you're smiling or frowning, how your eyes are moving, hundreds of thousands of data points. And from that process, the computer will spit out a score of whether you're worthy for the job or whether the company should just move along. And there's a company that has gotten very successful from providing this service, providing this software that allows people to do AI job interviews. Yeah, the company is called HireVue, and it does these video interview AI systems. And more than 100 companies are working with them now. More than a million job seekers have gone through this process. So it's kind of huge. And, you know, I was fascinated because... A lot of people had no idea that this was even taking place. And yet I ended up finding a ton of college students and it had become like a fact of life for their job seeking process. They were studying up on how to impress the algorithm and they were unnerved by the fact that they were being like silently judged. So it just felt like an interesting question of like, what are these systems even really looking at and what happens if they get it wrong? So... If I were just applying for a job right now, how exactly does it work? Yeah, so you would, you know, submit your resume and they would send you a link and they would say sort of click this within, you know, 48 hours or something, pull this app up on your phone, and you're going to be looking at, 
yourself and the reflection in the camera, and you're going to be answering these written down questions. You get 15 to 30 minutes to answer the questions. You don't know what they are in advance. And it's a range of stuff from how would you deal with a problematic employee to, you know, what is a time when you've succeeded in the past? All pretty standard sort of interview fare. But the difference is you're not actually talking to a human being. You're just talking into a screen. And all along the way, these algorithms are crunching sort of how you look when you're saying them. Yeah. So so what are they actually looking for? What are the qualities that this AI is able to test for? Yeah. So HireVue says they break it down in a couple of different ways. One is what they call facial action units. So this is your facial expression. What does that even mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. This is their term for like facial expressions, facial movements that they say correspond to you know, maybe your enthusiasm for the task or, you know, maybe if the question is about how you deal with a problematic coworker, are you looking frustrated? Are you looking angry? Or are you looking calm and collected? So a lot of it is sort of like the facial dynamics of how you look. The other part of it is how you sound. And not just the words you're saying, it, it, it sort of collects the words you're saying and and processes those as, you know, into your employability score. But it also says, like, well, how is your tone sound? What, what's the pitch of your speech? Are you talking too quickly? Are you talking too slowly? The company says it boils all this down into, like, a really authoritative score. But the problem with this system and with many systems is that we don't really know how the score is collected. And honestly, this seems fraught with opportunity for standardized discrimination, right? Discriminating against darker faces, discriminating against women's voices, against people who don't speak English as their first language. I like it just it seems like there are many ways in which this technology can be used for bad things. Totally. And you just have to wonder like what is the system even grading me against? What is this like model employee? And you know, a lot of the people I talk to including like lawmakers and AI researchers they're saying like what if this system thinks the perfect employee looks like a white guy or, you know, a white woman? Like, or speaks in a certain way that, like, has a, a waspy accent rather than how many people in, in the country who do their jobs really well speak, which is very different. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the fear. Like, is this system just grading you off how close you are to some you know, perfect automaton that they've had in the office before? Or are they understanding, like, the things that make you you, the things that make you special um, are not always this perfect thing? And so, you know, the company says, like, they take this very seriously. They say they have all of these, like, checks for bias and that they actually feel like it's uh, it's a way that you could have a more inclusive workplace because they say, you know, look at human hiring managers right now. They have all sorts of subtle biases, right? They're picking people that often look like them. And so maybe if this system could be more objective, maybe it would pick up on these indicators of enthusiasm that are separate from their skin color or their, you know, accent. Hmm. That's an interesting argument. The idea that right now the bar for this software to be effective is so low because actually a lot of hiring managers do have subconscious or very conscious biases that they use in the hiring process. And so that even if this technology has its own problems, it might actually be better than the many biases that we see come up in the hiring process with humans. Totally. And that's what I find so fascinating because, you know, hiring right now is just 
as everybody knows, just this total crapshoot. And it's so random, and you can send off a resume that looks great, and you can have this great interview and never be selected. And, you know, you just never really know at the end of it, like, did I say something wrong? Did the person just not like me? You know, the company says, like, hey, we can we can solve for that. We can put in these algorithms that that are giving you a fair shake. The problem that AI researchers see is that you're sort of exchanging one black box, you know, these hiring managers who may have their own sort of discriminatory thoughts with another black box, which are these computer systems where we don't really know what indicators they're exactly looking at. We don't know whether they're making the right decisions based off of those indicators. Are we just swapping out one problematic system for the next? And, you know, along the way, are we then grading people off of this unfair, totally opaque system that forces people to respond in this weird way where they're having to sort of force themselves to be a little inhuman to kind of impress the machine. We just really don't know. And, and, and that's the problem. Like, we're trusting in these AI systems to be doing these objective things, but we don't really know, and it's driving people a little crazy. That lack of understanding about how algorithms are performing important functions It's a problem that's not limited to the hiring process. Today in the journal Science, a team of researchers reported that a medical algorithm that's very widely used to kind of rank the health care needs of patients has a bias to favor white patients over sicker black people. I'm Carolyn Johnson, and I'm a science reporter. This kind of algorithm is used on probably 200 million people in the U.S. by health systems, government agencies, and insurers. In this case, you know, this comes from a really kind of an important question, which is the idea that if you can identify the sickest people, the people who are most likely to have complex health needs in the next year, maybe you can intervene. Maybe you can help them, give them extra support, extra resources, and help them become healthier. So that's a really important and logical question to ask. The problem is that this is reinforcing this longstanding bias in medicine because the data they use to train their algorithm or to kind of look for how to identify and predict this was how much medical care do these people use. And so there's a long history of black patients using less medical care, and that's for a variety of reasons that could involve less access to care, could also involve unconscious bias, uh, could involve distrust of the medical system. But what you do if you use that data to predict future behavior is you just perpetuate the bias. You can fix this algorithm and erase and correct for the bias. It doesn't fix the whole problem because there are other vendors of these algorithms that would have to go in and kind of tweak them. There are health systems that would have to make changes. But I think Putting this kind of issue out there wakes people up to the problem. And it's very obvious in hindsight to these researchers that, oh, this bias exists. But it wasn't obvious until they looked. And more broadly, I think people in the kind of AI field are talking about different ways to oversee algorithms. There's these two pressures because... These are proprietary, expensive products, and they don't want to open up the black box because that's what they're selling. But at the same time, you could imagine some kind of oversight mechanism where experts could go in and look for bias and kind of correct them. And it could be without disclosing 
all the details. Carolyn Johnson and Drew Harwell are reporters for The Post. the last decade or so, there's been a lot of concern among federal policymakers about how for-profit colleges are engaging with students. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers higher education for The Post, and she's been looking into how the Department of Education keeps tabs on for-profit colleges. We saw the Obama administration try to implement a bunch of regulations that would make it tougher for these schools to receive federal financial aid dollars in the form of grants and loans and impose ways to make sure that they weren't saddling their students with more debt than they could repay. There has been a wholesale repeal and delay of a lot of those regulations under the Trump administration. Because of that, Congress launched an investigation into the Department of Education, and specifically... Into the Department of Education's role in helping a company by the name of Dream Center. This company owned a bunch of for-profit colleges, including the Art Institutes and Argosy University. Now, what House Democrats are interested in is whether the department propped up the company while it should have allowed them to close their schools. This week, House investigators released new documents in the case. What we have learned is that the Education Department provided nearly $11 million in federal loans and grants to students at two for-profit schools, even though officials at the department knew the schools were not accredited and ineligible to receive the aid. And in this particular case, there is a senior department official who is telling the company that even though two of your schools were unaccredited, which means that you were not supposed to be receiving federal student loans and grants, we're going to create a retroactive conversion from you guys being a for-profit school to being a non-profit school. All temporary, but all covering the period in which you weren't supposed to be receiving that money. So basically, these are things that the Department of Education was doing to help enable these for-profit schools to continue functioning and to continue taking in students. Why would they do that if the policy of the Department of Education is that for-profit schools shouldn't be receiving federal funds and, and that there is this attempt to try to crack down on them? So the department's position has always been that they are trying to do what's best for students. And with this particular case, they're saying, well, you know, the students had already received the money. They were already enrolled in the classes. We wanted to make sure to cover them in case they needed to transfer elsewhere. That has been the department's position all along, that everything that they did was to help students through this period of transition. Yes, these schools were winding down. Yes, it was their closure was pretty much imminent. The department claims this was the best option. But there are a lot of students who say that this actually wasn't the best option for them, right? That the fact that they got federal loans to attend this school, even though the school was about to shut down, that that actually made things a lot harder for them. Yes. In fact, there are several students involved in this particular story that are suing the education department right now, saying that the loans that they received during that five-month period are invalid. Those loans are in violation of federal laws, and as a result, the students say they should not have to repay them. Good afternoon, Chairman and members of the committee. My name is Robert J. Inficino, and I am a former student of the for-profit Illinois Institute of Art in Schaumburg, Illinois. 
One of the students I spoke to for this story, Robert Infusino, who is suing the Education Department, actually testified earlier this year before Congress about his experiences at the art institutes. The Illinois Institute of Arts started recruiting me when I was still in high school. And how devastating it was learning much later that the school was unaccredited. Then last year, a few days before returning to what should have been my last summer break, I checked my email and my heart sank. I found messages saying that the school was not accredited and it was closing at the end of the year. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, this was one of the worst days of my life. I felt like the world was crashing down around me and everything that I had done at the school was just going away. Mr. Infusino told me that had he had known that his school was unaccredited for the months of which he was still taking out loans, he would have he would have made the choice to transfer elsewhere faster. When I returned to campus, it was chaos and I did everything I could to find answers, but got nowhere. During one meeting, I learned that the school knew about its lost accreditation six months before they bothered to tell students. They knew but did not tell us. They just kept taking our money for worthless credits. What has Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos said about this? So Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has made it clear that she doesn't believe that any sector of higher education should be targeted because of their IRS status, as she likes to say, you know, for-profit schools or have that designation in part because of how they collect and receive money and the benefit to her executives compared to a nonprofit school or a public university that doesn't have the same mission. But she says it's unfair to make those d- distinctions and that all stakeholders within higher education should be held to the same standard and accountability measures, which is the argument she has used in repealing and delaying Obama-era regulations. Certainly, the department does not support the idea of of schools preying upon students, and she has said that before Congress and uh, in other times. Fraud, in any case, is not to be tolerated, and I think we have to be very clear about that. We need to ensure that students that have been defrauded, that is taken into consideration in regards to their student debt and dealt with uh, appropriately. But some of its actions makes it seem that there is support for these for-profit schools. We need to make sure that students go into higher education with their eyes wide open about what they're buying and what they have. So this new information, what does it say about the way that the Department of Education is currently handling the problem of for-profit colleges and, and people who end up stuck at places that are not accredited? It builds upon a emerging narrative of the Trump administration and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos being very conciliatory towards for-profit colleges to the detriment of students. This administration oversaw the uh, deregulation of the industry. Education Secretary DeVos has also brought on a lot of former for-profit college executives into her cabinet at the Education Department, which raised all sorts of eyebrows. And when you see these deals where the Department of Education appears to be going out of its way to help this school in ways that are pretty unprecedented... 
it just kind of adds fuel to the fire of House Democrats and Senate Democrats who have said that they are doing their best to help these companies put profits before people. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers higher education for The Post. one more thing. In Lebanon, pent-up frustration and rage are fueling protests against government corruption. One person would sing out the first line of the national anthem. We're all for the homeland and everyone else would jump in. Women danced tepke, a traditional circle line dance, while men brought out their shisha equipment and blew large plumes of flavored smoke above the crowds. Uh, People chanted profanity-laced rhymes, cursing all leaders, regardless of sect and political party. One chant specifically targeted the foreign minister, Jibran Basile, who's also the president's son-in-law. And that's basically become the rallying cry of the protests. I'm Sarah Dadush, a Beirut-based correspondent for The Washington Post. The whole country of Lebanon seems to be out on the streets. People initially went out in small crowds because there was an announcement by a minister about value-added tax being increased by 15% over the next three years. And they also announced that they were going to tax WhatsApp calls, which is a very big deal for people in Lebanon because they rely heavily on internet phone calls such as Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp to talk to people. But the protests really blew up after uh, a minister's bodyguards shot their guns above protesters um, who had just been protesting the political elite. And so everyone in the country just went out to the street that night and just protested this political elite that they say has been rife with corruption for for many, many decades. Prime Minister Saad Hadid on Monday announced a package of reforms set up to fight the corruption that people have been calling to end and to end the economic crisis that people have been protesting. So he halved the official salaries. He uh, set up a committee to fight cor- corruption and return stolen government money to, to the public um, and to, to overhaul the dysfunctional electricity sector, which is a big problem in Lebanon. But people immediately continued protesting, demanding that he and everyone else in the government across different sects and political parties resign immediately. These protests are important because they're they're protesting the corruption of a government that's completely destroyed by sectarian political rivalries. The same political leaders from the same groups have been ruling for decades. Since the end of the civil war in 1990, electricity isn't very functional. The internet's very expensive. The whole country is very expensive. The beaches are littered and very dirty and no one can swim in a beach in Beirut. Everyone's very fed up of the lack of clean water, clean air, and affordable anything. There's no sign so far that any of the people responsible are resigning, but people say and have continued to go to the street uh, protesting and uh, demanding the same things that they've been demanding since last Thursday night. Sarah Dadouche is a correspondent for The Post based in Beirut. 
And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, the journey of a young Syrian couple in search of a better life. Do you think you would? Uh, do you think you would go back to Syria? No, no, not going back. No chance to live in there. Bad schools, bad hospitals, bad war, war. This word is enough. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham, host of the Washington Post's presidential and constitutional podcasts. We've just released the finale for my latest series called Moonrise. It re-examines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction to tell a new story about space. Listen on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise. You can binge the entire series available now.